Section 24 of Reminiscences and Table Talk of Samuel Rogers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Miscellaneous Remarks and Anecdotes by the Duke of Wellington. The French king, when he goes from chapels, speaks to everybody, and different rooms have different ranks. I have often dined with the king of the Netherlands. The northern kings admit subjects and strangers to dine with them. The Bourbons never did, I believe, at Paris, except in my instance. At Ghent, perhaps, the etiquette was departed from, but I believe I am the only person who has dined with Louis Eighteenth at Paris. I have dined often with him. He sat at six, and when dinner was announced, was wheeled in from the room in which he had received me. The table was large, and he sat between the two ladies. I sat between Monsieur and the Duc d'Angoulême. They were waited upon by gentlemen, I by a servant, and of course best served. The dinner was exquisite. We sat down at six and rose at seven, and then all sat and talked with the king till late, avoiding all political subjects. The king ate freely, but mixed water with his wine, which was champagne. The king will not now go out in the carriage, but on great occasions. They have contrived a machine to lift him into it by, but his indolence, or his fear of the caricaturists, or both, keep him at home. He is fond of mots, and full of esprit, rather than sensible, and did not at first consent to read the speeches prepared for him by his ministers, preferring to speak d'abondance. The Emperor Alexander, when here in 1814, treated the Prince Regent with no respect, thinking him not half a king, and kept him often waiting. Ministers were anxious to set him right by their behaviour, and desired me to do so, but Lord Grenville produced the greatest effect, showing the Prince every attention at Oxford, and treating the others only as his guests. The old King George the Third, his father, was no listener. When Fox came out of the closet once, somebody said, You've had a long audience? Given one, you mean, was his answer. Note by Samuel Rogers at Woburn Abbey and Apsley House, April and June, 1821. The Duke of Wellington has naturally a great gaiety of mind. He laughs at almost everything, as if it served only to divert him. Not less remarkable is the simplicity of his manner. It is perhaps rather the absence of everything like affectation. In his account of himself he discovers in no instance the least vanity or conceit, and he listens always readily to others. His laugh is easily excited, and it is very loud and long, like the hoop of the hooping cough often repeated. Wellington speaks at Lady Shelley's Berkeley Square, May the 8th, 1823. Moscow, I am very sure, was burnt down by the irregularity of his, Bonaparte's, own soldiers. 
that pamphlet published by the governor of moscow states what i am persuaded was the truth if he had stopped and had contented himself with organizing poland and establishing poniatowski there it had been well for him after his austrian marriage metternich was sent to paris to see him and to report upon his character and to discover whether he meant to be quiet his answer as he told me was in three words he is unaltered he had then resolved to invade russia cassiobury october the second and third eighteen twenty four i hear nothing by my left ear the drum is broken it might have been broken twenty years ago for aught i know to the contrary a gun discharged near me might have done it strange impressions come now and then after a battle and such came to me after the battle of assai in india i slept in a farmyard and whenever i awaked it struck me that i had lost all my friends so many had i lost in that battle again and again as often as i awaked did it disturb me in the morning i inquired anxiously after one and another nor was I convinced that they were living till I saw them. I speared seven or eight wild boars in a forest in Picardy, an eastern practice. The largest struck the sole of my foot with his tusk when I thrust my lance into his spine and was turning my horse off at the instant, as I always did. The rest of the party set up a shout, and I believe it gave me more pleasure, this achievement, than anything I ever did in my life. Lord Hill killed one on foot, but the difficult thing was to kill one on horseback. Whoever threw the first lance into a boar claimed it as his. Never saw but one royal tiger wild, never at a tiger hunt. Elephants used always in war in India for conveyance of stores or artillery. I had once occasion to send my men through a river upon some. A drunken soldier fell off and was carried down by the torrent till he scrambled up a rock in the middle of the stream. I sent the elephant after him, and with large strides he obeyed his driver. When arrived, he could not get near the rock, and he stiffened his tail to serve as a plank. The man was too drunk to avail himself of it, and the elephant seized him with his trunk, and notwithstanding the resistance he made and the many cuffs he gave that sensitive part, placed him on his back. At Abathnots over the fire, Sunday evening, November the 21st, 1830. They want me to place myself at the head of a faction, but I say to them, I have now served my country for forty years, for twenty I have commanded her armies, and for ten I have sat in the cabinet, and I will not now place myself at the head of a faction. When I lay down my office tomorrow, I will go down into my county, and do what I can to restore order and peace. And in my place in Parliament, when I can, I will approve, when I cannot, I will dissent, but I will never agree to be the leader of a faction. Footnote, this was on Earl Grey's accession to office, 
on the resignation of the Duke of Wellington. Samuel Rogers speaking. Having met Lord Grey again and again at my table, and knowing our intimacy, he meant that these words should be repeated to him, and so they were word for word on that very night. Wellington speaks at Talleyrand's March the 13th, 1831. Scott's life of Napoleon is of no value. The tolerable part of it is what relates to his retreat from Moscow. I have thought much on that subject, and I have made many inquiries concerning it. I gave him my papers. He has used some, not all. Wolfe Tone was a most extraordinary man, and his history is the most curious history of those times. With a hundred guineas in his pocket, unknown and unrecommended, he went to Paris in order to overturn the British government in Ireland. He asked for a large force, Lord Edward Fitzgerald, for a small one. Lord Edward was for assistance only, and was afraid of their control. They listened to tone. But when their fleet arrived in Bantry Bay, the Irish would not rise to join them. Then it was, I believe, and for that purpose, that their religious feelings were worked upon. From that time, the dissension was religious before it was political. July the 5th, 1831 In Poland, an army can keep the field from June till February. In February, the thaw begins and the rivers become impassable, nor are they navigable till June. In that interval, too, the roads are axle-deep. Divich began in February 1831, urged on probably by the Emperor, and failing in his first attempt, was obliged to throw his troops into cantonments. These the Poles attacked with a terrible slaughter. Dybich must have lost there above 30,000 men. The Russians will now, I think, settle the matter, and yet a revolutionary war is the most difficult to manage of any. Military tactics are there of little service. The Poles, I think, have no chance if the Russian army is true, and it is only when in their quarters that troops grow mutinous and desert, not in the field. Bonaparte began his campaign there, in Poland, in June, when he fought the battle that ended in the Peace of Tilsit, he was slow in Paris, but swift enough when he took the field. Apsley House, March the 1st, 1832 A tax on the transfer of stock was three times proposed to me from Cambridge by a professor. I sent them the clause in the Act of Parliament against it, and heard no more of it. At my house, Friday, June the 22nd, 1832. On June the 18th, 1832, Monday, I rode to Pastrucci in the Mint. He had made a bust of me, but wished for another sitting. So I went, without giving him notice, on that day at nine o'clock, and mounted my horse at half-past ten to leave him. When I found a crowd at the gate, and several groaned and hooted, some cried, Bonaparte forever. 
I rode on at a gentle pace, but they followed me. Soon a magistrate, Ballantyne, came and offered his services. I thanked him, but said I thought I should get on very well. The noise increased, and two old soldiers, Chelsea pensioners, came up to me. One of them said he had served under me for many a day, and I said to him, then keep close to me now. And I told them to walk on each side, and whenever we stopped, to place themselves each with his back against the flank of my horse. Not long afterwards I saw a policeman making off, and I knew it must be to the next station for assistance. I sent one of my pensioners after him, and presently we got another policeman. We then did pretty well till I reached Lincoln's Inn, where I had to call at an attorney's chambers, Smalls. Sugden and many others came out of the Chancery Court to accompany me, and a large reinforcement of police came from Bow Street. The conduct of the citizens affected me not a little. Many came out of the shops to ask me in. Many ladies in their carriages were in tears, and many waved their handkerchiefs from the windows and pointed downwards to ask me in. I came up Hoban by the advice of a man in a red cape. At first I thought it might be a snare, but I found him to be a city marshal. I was forty minutes in coming from the Mint to Lincoln's Inn. A young man in a buggy did me great service, flanking me for some time and never looking towards me for any notice. Ellis's Hotel, March the 20th, 1838 the French in Algeria should have done as we have done in India. They should have respected everywhere private property and the customs and habits of the people. They have introduced a system of spoliation and plunder that sets every man against them, a system that is now too strong to be checked by the government at home. They parcel out the land, planting wheat where there was rice and changing the face of the country. Their soldiers, too, I suspect, are not what they were. What is that rara avis common sense? It is, I believe, a good understanding, moderated and modulated by a good heart. Samuel Rogers, as he said these words, his voice dropped, and I never knew him speak with more feeling. July the 21st, 1838. Clausel made no mistake at Constantine. The failure was occasioned by the badness of his army. He could not depend upon his officers. They were so worthless a set. At Lord Wilton's, June the 5th, 1840. The Chinese show more sense and knowledge than I thought they possessed. They reason well and they fight our ships better than I thought they would. But of this, I am sure, we must make them sensible of our power. They are now constructing vast gongs and preparing to frighten us with terrifying noises. The Portuguese ordered their soldiers to attack us with ferocious countenances. November twenty-fourth, 1840 I was on my way to Fontainebleau with Charles X, then Monsieur, and the Duke of Fitzjames, 
when passing in the carriage through the street in which Henry the Fourth had been assassinated, and Charles pointed out to me the very place where, according to tradition, it had happened, Charles spoke of him with great admiration, and dwelt much on his merit in changing his religion for the good of his country, contrasting his conduct with that of James the Second. Fitz James, of course, took the part of his ancestor, and long was the argument while I sat still, leaving the combatants to themselves. At last they came to the same opinion, agreeing that Henry was right in becoming a Catholic, and James in continuing one. Had Caesar's commentaries with me in India and learnt much from them, fortifying my camp every night as he did. I passed over the rivers as he did by means of baskets and boats of basket work. Only I think I improved upon him, constructing them into bridges, and always fortifying them and leaving them guarded, to return by them if necessary. Told me by a busknot at Beckett's Downing Street, November the 14th, 1826, Samuel Rogers. He, the Duke, had a high idea of Moore's talents. Lieutenant General Sir John Moore, K.B., and always said that all he wanted was practice in the command of a large body of troops. At the Treaty of Sintra, he said to Moore, You and I, Moore, are now the only men, and if you are to command... I am ready to serve under you. Samuel Rogers speaking. Walking some years ago, about 1838 or 1839, through the park with the Duke of Wellington, I said to him, among other things, What an array there is in the House of Commons against Lord John Russell, Peel, Stanley, Graham, etc. Wellington, Lord John is a host in himself. It was in vain that the Duke of Wellington said, You must not cross the Indus, for sure as you are to conquer, you can nowhere establish yourselves. We crossed it, and go where we would, disaster followed us wherever we went. Yet never to the last has he suffered the least allusion to it in Parliament. Were the subject to be revived, it would lessen us, he says, in the eyes of all Europe. And when Sir James Graham gave notice of a motion concerning it, he sent his friend Arbuthnot to say to him, You must not make it. Of the Duke's perfect coolness on the most trying occasions, Colonel Gurwood gave me this instance. He was once in great danger of being drowned at sea. It was bedtime when the captain of the vessel came to him and said, it will soon be all over with us. Very well, answered the Duke. Then I shall not take off my boots. End of section 24 End of Reminiscences and Table Talk of Samuel Rogers